Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Sometime today, the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection will release its final report. It's expected to be over a thousand pages long and to include the most complete record of that infamous day and the attack on the Capitol that has yet to be compiled. Today, we're going to talk with legal experts about what the committee accomplished, how the next steps of the legal battle may play out, and how we should read this new complete report. By now, you've heard that Donald Trump was referred to the Justice Department for criminal charges. But what happens now? We'll review the committee's work and look ahead at what comes next. That's all coming up. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The strangest thing about the January 6th insurrection, beyond the fact that it happened, is that few of the actual facts are in dispute. In the final hearing of the Congressional Committee investigating that day, Benny Thompson, a Democrat from Mississippi, laid out both what was at stake and what Donald Trump chose to do in order to hold on to power. To cast a vote in the United States is an act of faith and hope. When we drop that ballot in the ballot box, we expect the people named on the ballot are going to uphold their end of the deal. The winner swears an oath and upholds it. Those who come up short ultimately accept the results and abide by the rule of law. That faith in our system is the foundation of American democracy. If the faith is broken, so is our democracy. Donald Trump broke that faith. He lost the 2020 election and knew it. But he chose to try to stay in office through a multi-part scheme to overturn the results and block the transfer of power. In the end, he summoned a mob to Washington and knowingly they were armed and angry, pointed them to the Capitol and told them to fight like hell. There's no doubt about this. Despite that being what happened, now backed by mountains of evidence, Donald Trump's the leading contender to become the Republican nominee for president in 2024. It's that gap between the attack on our democracy and the political reality of the conservative party in this country that finds us contemplating the meaning of the January 6th committee's work this morning. What did it accomplish, if anything? Is it possible for a congressional committee to write a first draft of history, even if it is a thousand pages long? 
Joining us this morning, we've got Ryan Goodman, professor of law at NYU, also the co-editor-in-chief of Just Security and a former special counsel for the Department of Defense. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Also joined by Sarah D. Wire uh, with the Justice Department and National Security Reporter for the Los Angeles Times, focusing on January 6th and domestic extremism. Also joined by Shan Wu, criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst and a former federal prosecutor who also served as counsel to Attorney General Janet Reno. Welcome, Sarah. Welcome, Shan. Good to be here. Uh, Sarah, let's start with you. After 10 hearings, the committee released these four criminal referrals for Donald Trump. Can you tell us sort of what they are and what that means? So the referrals are a suggestion, for lack of better means. Okay. I mean, the, uh, the Justice Department does not have to do anything with these. And uh, honestly, the Justice Department probably doesn't want to look like they're taking advice from Congress on an ongoing investigation of this scale. But it is serious. I mean, this is the first time in American history that a congressional investigation ended with a criminal referral of a former president. And I mean, the charges they're referring for include treason. Um, so that that moment can't be lost in the fact that they have no legal weight whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan Goodman, you know, as we look at these criminal referrals, you know, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to confraud the U.S., these aid, uh, assist aid and comfort insurrection. You know, as Sarah was saying, these are these feel like big block type um, charges how are they kind of backing it up and saying, okay, Donald Trump violated these statutes in this way? So there are um, so many, in certain sense, overlapping conspiracies um, that are identified according to the committee. Uh, So some of the schemes actually would come under two um, or more um, headings of the Mm -hmm. criminal statute. So the big ticket items are um, the effort to overturn the election through interference with the congressional proceedings. That includes pressuring Mike Pence to um, not follow through on his duty, which is simply to count the votes. And that comes under the obstruction statute, uh, which is actually the very same statute that the Justice Department has used in dozens of cases to prosecute individuals who used violence and other means to obstruct those proceedings. Uh, Then you also have the conspiracy to defraud Americans of a fair administration of our elections. And that includes uh, other you know, areas like pressure on state officials to try to flip popular votes in Georgia and elsewhere. Um, then uh, we have something that I think uh, many of the listeners will be quite familiar with, the statewide scheme to create these false slate of electors to issue false um, certificates uh, in battleground states that Trump had lost and then submit them both to the archives and Congress. That runs straight afoul of a federal statute on submitting false statements to administrative agencies and Congress. And then the last one is this, um, the one that came a little bit of as a surprise even to close observers like uh, Shannon and me, and, uh, which is Uh, the insurrection. Uh, So this is about giving aid and comfort and assistance to the insurrection. And that's really about Donald Trump and the violence, uh, which I think many Americans are trying to wrap their heads around that question of whether there's criminal liability for the person on the top of what everybody saw on their TV screens and elsewhere. 
because everything else I just mentioned are like using lawyers and the like <laughs> to try to interfere with the election. The violence and the attack in the Capitol is the one that comes under uh, the insurrection crime. Um, and that might be the one that's the most difficult uh, for the Justice Department to pursue. Yeah. Shen Wu, you know, hundreds of people have uh, now been charged in connection with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. There's been some high profile convictions like the, uh, you know, organized groups that had gone uh, there. But it does seem like it's a much more difficult task to prove that the people who were goading on those at the Capitol have, um, as Wrangling was saying, you know, criminal liability in this case. Yeah, that's correct. And um, Ryan raises such an important point that it's uh, so unprecedented to actually charge the insurrection. Um, as a former prosecutor, I will say this, though. I, I think it's a good idea that they charge it for this reason. Legally, not much precedent for it. Pretty daunting task. But from a jury appeal point of view, I find that to be a really helpful charge because you have these images of Trump making a speech on the ellipse, and you can say in plain English to that District of Columbia jury that, look at what the statute says, inciting the violence, giving aid and comfort to these violent people. That allows you to use that image and speak in a very plain way to translate to them what's going on here without having to wind through the sort of, this is a insurrection using lawyers and paper and, and memos. That's absolutely critical. They need to make that case. But I think there's a sort of a visceral appeal to using that charge as well. So I, I commend them for putting it out there as a referral. Yeah. You know, as we've been noticing, Shannon, let's, let's stay with you. you know, these are largely symbolic referrals. Uh, and Sarah mentioned you know, maybe that the DOJ didn't even want them to be referred. So how do we evaluate their sig significance, and why did they do it if the DOJ wouldn't want such referral? Well, I think they had to do it because they needed to wrap up their extremely extensive investigation, and it makes sense for them to make that ref these referrals if that's what they conclude. Uh, in terms of the weight of these referrals, certainly, you know, having been a DOJ veteran, we sometimes look with a slight grain of salt on referrals or inquiries from Congress. But this is not the run-of-the-mill referral. Uh, this, for two reasons. First, it's very comprehensive in terms of the investigation, over a thousand witnesses, the documents. It's really setting forth a lot of substance. And also, interestingly enough, this referral comes as there are active criminal investigations going on. I think DOJ got a little bit of a late start, but it's active. So it's not just like a member of Congress saying, hey, I think you should take a look at this. There's something already going on. So I think it was good for them to do it. It can be very helpful to DOJ. Where it's not helpful to them is in releasing the full transcripts it makes DOJ have to scour through those to look for potential inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. There could be something actually exculpatory in some of that testimony. Presenting witnesses to a congressional committee, interviewing them or testifying, very different than the grand jury. In the grand jury, you can pick and choose a lot more and tailor the best parts of the testimony to be presented. Here, you're kind of getting the whole thing, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. You know, Sarah Wire couple other figures uh, circling around Trump during the post-election period. I mean, John Eastman, also uh, a California lawyer, 
also received a referral. But then Rudy Giuliani, who also has figured so heavily into so many different accounts of, of what was happening, did not receive a referral. Like, how do we parse out those components of this investigation? It was very interesting that Eastman was the only other person besides Trump who was named in the committee's referrals. Um, And I think they saw Eastman's conduct and his role as rising to that level, Uh, not necessarily on par with Trump's, but, you know, important enough that they wanted to draw a direct line to it. Um, You know, when it comes to others like Giuliani, the cast of characters involved with this is so large. I mean, obviously there's, you know, the thousand depositions that were taken, but beyond that, I mean, there's hundreds of other people who were involved even tangentially. And so uh, what committee members were telling me was that they wanted to draw specific attention to John Eastman, Hmm. but that they also didn't want to name too many people and, make it appear that they were, you know, limiting DOJ to only those people. Got it. That the, the the scope of evidence that they were prepared to present to DOJ and have already begun uh, bringing to DOJ was so large that they wanted, you know, to just raise some issues without specifically listing everyone they thought should be charged. Mm. We're talking about the work of the January 6th committee and what could happen next with Sarah D. Wire, reporter at the Los Angeles Times covering the Justice Department as well as focusing on January 6th and domestic extremism. Also joined by Ryan Goodman, a professor of law at New York University, co-editor-in-chief of Just Security and a former special counsel for the Department of Defense. And Shan Wu, uh, joining us again, criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst, also a former federal prosecutor who served as counsel to Attorney General Janet Reno. We'd love to hear from you. Have the January 6th hearings changed or affected your view of the insurrection? You can give us a call. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're KQED Forum and the emails forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the work of the January 6th committee as we await, possibly even this morning, in which case Sarah Weyer will have to leave us. Uh, She's a reporter at the Los Angeles Times. We've got a big report that's uh, coming down the pipeline from the January 6th committee. It's sort of complete findings 
Um, in addition to Sarah Weyer, we're joined by Ryan Goodman, professor of law at uh, NYU and co-editor-in-chief of Just Security, and Shan Wu, a criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the committee itself and this final report. Uh, Ryan Goodman, you know, uh, Republicans are going to control the House, and this committee goes away basically at the beginning of the year, right? That's right. Yeah. And then once that happens, they've been releasing these different materials. Um, Just uh, yesterday they released a bunch of transcripts of people like Enrique Tarrio just saying I take the fifth over and over and over and over again, uh, former chairman, whatever that means of the Proud Boys. Uh, and now we're going to we got Cassidy Hutchinson transcript. There's going to be this full report. Is Does the website go away? Like, where does that all get archived so that as people, you know, dig into this over the next few weeks, reporters and analysts and other investigators, where, where will that live? It's a great question. Um, and I am participating in and aware of uh, some civil society actors that are trying to think of different ways to preserve it um, and to also organize it. Uh, because, for example, yesterday, the um, transcripts were just dumped in alphabetical order of about 30, pe- 30 plus people. And, you know, one question is, do you reorganize that according to right. some were governmental, some were uh, militia groups? Do you organize it according to the way this committee has presented it, which is essentially all the folks who are claiming the fifth? Um, and does it survive a House majority Republican led by Kevin McCarthy or somebody else that could do away with a public facing archive. I think it's super important um, in that respect. And um, and just also goes to uh, Shan's point from before, which is, I think the committee itself uh, was in a bind as to whether or not you release all of these documents, which they've decided to do. And indeed, that could complicate the life of the Justice Department in its investigations. But at the same time, if they hadn't done so, sorry, and then the last thought is just at the same time, if they hadn't done so, then Jim uh, Jordan, as the chair of the incoming House Judiciary Committee, for example, could selectively release pieces of these documents out of context, and that would be a worse world. Um, So I think that's part of the probably a part of the motivation uh, behind it. And now it will be for others in a certain sense to try to preserve all this material. Yeah. And we are, this is a rush. Uh, Sarah Wire, I mean, there's only, you know, a few days left before uh, the holiday, Christmas holiday, um, January 3rd is the you know, transition of power. But we are expecting this full thousand page report out today at some point. We've received just the kind of introductory material so far. What do you think is going to be in that report that we haven't already seen either in the hearings or in some other uh, format. And the, the final report is expected to follow kind of the pacing of the hearings, the topics of the hearings that are going to be each chapter. Um, you know, I don't think we're going to see any major bombshells that change people's minds, but we're going to see a level of detail that the committee was not able to explore in the hearings. You know, you, you mentioned that the committee is dissolved at the end of this Congress in in just over a week's time. And, you know, that's really important because any information that they don't release, um, you know, it either the website gets taken down, um, the documents get 
potentially handed over to the National Archives where they're then locked up for the next 30 years mm. before they become public records. And so you can sense this urgency from the committee to release as much information as possible. And so in some ways, I think after, after the November election, they turned the report into as much of a catch-all as possible mm. because they knew this would be their only chance to influence public perception of what happened on January 6th, to, to set that narrative. Yeah. Um, Shan, I have been following, you know, people who are watching this really closely, and it's one of those times where people are like, I'm really excited to see what's in the appendices. <laughs> um, do you find yourself in that category? And why is that? That's, <laughs> is, is that because that's going to be essentially, um, you know, the treasure chest where they're like, well, we just are putting stuff in there that other people will find eventually. Yes, that will be a treasure chest because we'll have a lot of the raw material. I mean, it's really important in something this voluminous that there are summaries and narratives that are put together, but there is no substitute um, for seeing the actual raw testimony of folks. Um, and also, of course, something that is getting kind of short shrift is any recommendations about security at the Capitol mm. and the apparent failure of the intelligence gathering or failure to act from law enforcement. I mean, that by itself could easily be an entire congressional inquiry, but my understanding is that's one of the appendices too. And I think that's you know very important to, to look at. Yeah. Ryan Goodman, what might you go rummaging for when the full report comes out? So I'm rummaging for in a few things. Um, one is, you know, the answer to the burning question of what delayed the National Guard. Mm. Um, the answer to the question that Shan just identified, what explains the intelligence failure, especially on the part of the FBI. And in a certain sense, I think that on the latter, we might be very, very dissatisfied with the um, ability of the committee to have done enough work in that space, which means that it's really important for there being another kind of a full inquiry. Maybe it's the Senate Judiciary Committee can take it up because they have jurisdiction or the like, but a historic intelligence failure on American soil of a terrorist attack. Um, and we haven't had a full inquiry into that failure. Um, and then I'm also looking for specific names. I thought one of the most important pieces of the executive summary that the committee released on Monday is a different part of the quote-unquote referrals, which is for the interference in their investigation, witness tampering, lawyers mm. telling uh, their clients to lie by saying they don't recall when they did recall, um, things like that. I'm looking to see whether or not those lawyers are named. And we do have from the Cassidy Hutchinson transcripts that were just released this morning, her transcripts, and she's naming them in there. Uh, so that can we can connect the dots, but I, it's obviously important to see how the committee connected the dots. Uh, that's really, uh, I think, also something that could help boost the special counsel's investigation uh, because those people seem to have significant criminal liability. Mm. And we actually have uh, just a little cut of uh, Liz Cheney, who was a, a member of the committee, Republican from Wyoming, um, talking about this particular topic. Let's listen. And I want all Americans to know that what Ms. Hutchinson has done today is not easy. The easy course is to hide from the spotlight, to refuse to come forward, to attempt to downplay or deny what happened. That brings me to a different topic. While our committee has seen many witnesses, including many Republicans, testify fully and forthrightly, this has not been true of every witness. And we have received evidence 
of one particular practice that raises significant concern. Our committee commonly asks witnesses connected to Mr. Trump's administration or campaign whether they've been contacted by any of their former colleagues or anyone else who attempted to influence or impact their testimony. And Sarah Weyer, it seems as if what we might find out is more information about that particular practice of contacting these witnesses and asking them not to testify. And just from what we've seen from the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony this morning um, has been vaguely eye-opening, even for those of us who were, have been following this very intensely for so long. Could you describe uh, what, what we found from that testimony? You know, she she talks about, you know, from her very first meeting with uh, the, the Trump-connected lawyer, he was talking about, you know, their job was to protect the president and that they trusted her to stay loyal. And that she kept hearing this phrase over and over for months as this lawyer was t- instructing her to lie to the committee <clears throat> or urging her to downplay her role in the administration or maybe not refresh her own memory. And that she became increasingly alarmed by this pressure to, to be loyal and stay loyal. Mm. And, you know, she she points to a variety of people, both attorneys, even all the way up to you know, former chief of staff Mark Meadows himself, pressuring her to stay loyal to Trump. And it's going to be fascinating to connect the dots throughout all the testimony for when else that happened. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, Shan Wu, Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony turned out to probably be the most memorable of any that was delivered during these hearings. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, the recent disclosures uh, from her, I guess she made them historically a while back, but we're learning about this issue with the lawyers. Uh, she continues to be, you know, a producer of bombshell testimony. That's really problematic, uh, what's being described uh, about the lawyer's behavior. Uh, you can certainly tell a client, don't volunteer information, just answer what's asked, but you can't tell them, instruct them, tell them you don't remember things when you actually remember them. You can't tell them, hey, it's better if you don't talk about this. That's really crossing the line. I mean, there's a little bit of fuzz in there where you could be safe. I mean, clients have asked me, you know, could I just lie and, you know, not tell the truth on the stand? I say, look, I can't tell you to perjure yourself on the stand. Here's what could happen if you say that. Here's how they would disprove you. Here's the penalties for it. But as a lawyer, you can't actively help the client strategize on how to lie about things. Um, and that's both an ethics problem, uh, which so many Trump era lawyers seem to be having, uh, as well as potentially uh, obstruction of justice liability could arise from that. Well, and some people, as I understand it, historically connected with Richard Nixon did, did in fact purge themselves and, and were prosecuted for it, right? Oh, sure, yes, I, I, absolutely. Now, uh, the reason we so often see people saying, I don't recall, I don't recall, is it's hard to prove the negative. It's hard to prove that somebody really remembers or doesn't remember something. Um, But as a lawyer, you can't tell people (laughs) that should be your answer. And there are ways to disprove that. I mean, if you have evidence that the other person in the conversation remembers it, if there are phone records, all those things can disprove your claim that you don't remember it. It's a pretty good defense to make for the witness, but it's not very helpful for the lawyer if they're telling them to use that technique. We have another cut uh, from the hearings. This is Cassidy Hutchinson, just uh, one of 
the, the many uh, kind of bombshell pieces of her testimony. And we understand that you walked Mr. Giuliani out of the White House that night, um, and he talked to you about January 6th. What do you remember him saying? As Mr. Giuliani and I were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, Cass, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. I remember looking at him and saying, Rudy, could you explain what's, what's happening on the 6th? Uh, he, he had responded something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. He's, he's going to be with the members. He's going to be with the senators. Talk to the chief about it. Talk to the chief about it. He knows about it. And did you go back uh, then up to the West Wing and tell Mr. Meadows about your conversation with Mr. Giuliani? I did. After Mr. Giuliani had left the campus that evening, I went back up to our office and I found Mr. Meadows in his office on the couch. He was scrolling through his phone. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, I had an interesting conversation with Rudy, Mark. Sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. That was Cassidy Hutchinson testifying for the Congressional Committee investigating January 6th, questioned by uh, Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming. Um, Ryan Goodman, I wanted to ask you about where we go from here, particularly in terms of the DOJ investigation. I mean, they're kind of moving along, you know, parallel tracks of this congressional inquiry. Do you think that they're looking into roughly the same kinds of things? Do you feel like it's it's different? And, and who's leading that investigation? So uh, I do think that they are looking into roughly the same kinds of things. And uh, I'll explain, you know, what the evidence is for that conclusion. And it's now being led by the special counsel, Jack Smith, um, appointed by Attorney General Garland. And Smith has a, has a reputation for being a very forward-leaning prosecutor who acts with dispatch. Um, and I think we've already seen that in a series of subpoenas that he has issued soon after uh, getting on board just a few weeks ago. And we know that the investigation definitely includes the um, false slate of electors. We've seen um, subpoenas produced through the media of individuals across different states who have received these from the Justice Department, both before um, Special Counsel Jack Smith got there and subsequent. And then we know that the um, Justice Department has brought before the federal grand jury in D.C. very senior uh, Trump officials who had visibility into um, the pressure campaign against Pence and other things like that. So former White House counsel, uh, former deputy White House counsel, the chief of staff to Mike Pence and Mike Pence's um, chief uh, counsel as well. And that they've over the Justice Department has overcome their objections of uh, executive privilege. So they've gotten their testimony. All of this seems to point to the Justice Department being on the same path. The only you know caveat I would make is the back to the insurrection crime. Um, there had been early reporting um, by the Washington Post and others that the Justice Department was looking into Roger Stone. And I do think that would be the most likely conduit 
for some aspects of like seditious conspiracy or insurrection. So seemingly suggesting that they're looking at that same space as well. And, but that's, that's the only one in which I have a question mark of what exactly the Justice Department is doing there. But it does, you know, it's consistent with what Attorney General Garland said, which is that they'd start at the bottom with the people who attacked inside the Capitol and worked their way up. That sounds like it's within the space of the violent attack on the Capitol. And he said that they would go to anybody at any level. He was obviously communicating in subtle terms that it, that could reach uh, Donald Trump. Mm. We've got a few uh, comments in from listeners. Uh, Roke tweets, the January 6th committee's work didn't change my mind about what happened. It has expanded my understanding of a wide scheme to overthrow the presidential elections. The committee has done a great job in educating the public. Patricia writes, abuse of power may not be a criminal offense, but it damages and destroys the reputation and the public's respect for the office of the president. It is something that the former president did constantly during his term, using the power of his office to get his way and twist the arms of those who were reluctant or hesitant so that he could hold on to power or gain a political advantage. Trump has done more damage to the office of the presidency than any other person uh, in our history. And Andy writes in to say, it's been a source of frustration for me that this has been primarily an exercise of preaching to the choir. My understanding is that these hearings have not changed the minds of people who like Trump prior to January 6th. Is there any evidence that the needle has been moved at all? And did this whole exercise change any 2024 votes? We'll talk about some of that when we come back with our panel talking about the work of the January 6th committee and what could happen. We're joined by Ryan Goodman, professor of law at New York University, also co-editor-in-chief of Just Security and a former special counsel for the Department of Defense. Sarah D. Wire, reporter at the LA Times covering the Justice Department and national security with a special focus on January 6th and domestic extremism. And Shan Wu, a criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst who's also a former federal prosecutor who served under Attorney General uh, Janet Reno. Love to hear some more uh, comments and, and calls from you. How have the January 6th hearings changed or affected your view of the insurrection? If you didn't follow these hearings, why not? And do you have any questions about what comes next in this larger batch of investigations? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As we await the final report from the January 6th committee, expected to be sort of thousand-page uh, work, the largest compilation of evidence 
uh, about what happened on January 6th. We're talking about the committee and what it's done. Our panel is composed of Shan Wu, criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst, Sarah D. Wire, who's covering January 6th and domestic extremism for the LA Times, and NYU law professor and co-editor-in-chief of Just Security, Ryan Goodman. Sarah, you know, I wanted to address the commenter's concern that these hearings were kind of just, quote, preaching to the choir of people who already believed that something bad had happened on January 6th. Is, wh- where's the evidence there on who has watched and who has been persuaded? You know, obviously there's been some polling, um, but I guess you could point to the November elections. I mean, I know the committee members do as as a sign that the uh, that the hearings broke through zeitgeist a bit. I mean, you you did see during the hearings, the numbers of people watching was just astronomical, um, but it wasn't being shown on Fox News and it definitely wasn't being picked up by some of the you know, further right news stations. So to be honest, I, I can't answer that clearly of, of who it actually affected. Yeah. Um, you know, the people who are already entrenched in what they thought about January 6th probably didn't pay that much attention and just became further entrenched. Yeah. You know, Shan, over the months, we've talked about, you know, the, the small audience for these hearings, which is to say, you know, Merrick Garland, Joe Biden, people who, you know, are inside the government. Do you think that these hearings did anything for those people? I think uh, for Merrick Garland and DOJ, and I'll now include Jack Smith, the special counsel, I think it greatly increased the pressure on them. Um, I think uh, Merrick Garland's, uh, you know, very properly moral man, and he really wants to repair the damage that's been done to DOJ's reputation being seen as a political weapon for the Trump administration. Very awkward line for him to walk there, because by trying so hard not to do anything political, of course, he's reacting to Mm -hmm. politics at the same time. Um, at DOJ, they do pay attention to public sentiment. When they're doing things the right way, of course, they don't make charging decisions based on that, but they're aware that people are looking at this. And certainly on a substantive level, what was brought out by the committee, I think, I'm not privy to any of this, but I think probably spurred them on a little bit, particularly in certain directions, because the committee did such a quick and comprehensive good job of digging out the details. Yeah. You know, Ryan Goodman, we've all watched congressional hearings, probably more than certainly more than I've wanted to in my life. I've watched many, not not just these uh, in in the course of reporting on things. These hearings were very different. Um, Do you think this will change anything in the way that congressional hearings work? Or was this kind of like a sui generis situation that really we won't see again? Yeah, I think it is a a one of a kind in a certain respect because of the conditions that allowed for um, the committee to work as it did. So the the conditions are um, a committee with a unified purpose um, and one in which there was not an effort to engage in um, grandstanding as well as just the kind of circus that we've seen in some other hearings, like the impeachment hearings. There was no kind of poison pill um, like Jim Jordan, who um, Kevin McCarthy had uh, selected as one of the people he wanted to be on the committee. Um, so you, we got to see a sober 
proceeding in which the committee could use multimedia to inform the public and to ask uh, kind of a sets of questions that created a narrative with the witnesses. And that's just gonna be really hard to replicate. Um, and I, so I do think they've set a high bar and maybe there are parts of this that could be replicated in the sense of um, ways in which members of Congress might wanna hold themselves in the future uh, in a sense, but I, I, I don't hold up much hope that we're gonna be able to see this over the next two years, let's say in the kind of congressional investigations that are to come, except for maybe in certain you know places like the Senate Intelligence Committee tends to be much more bipartisan and can have uh, this kind of uh, work product, uh, but otherwise not. Yeah. Let's uh, let's bring in a caller here. Uh, Daniel in San Francisco. Welcome. Uh, good morning, Alexis. Um, just in response to the caller who, or the listener who wrote in, concerned that the needle hasn't been moved for former Trump supporter for current or former Trump supporters. In my opinion, that's not really the point. Um, those people are dyed in the wool. Um, it hasn't really changed my mind either, but the point was not that. The point was that we document this important part of history. It's been documented. Details have been revealed that otherwise would not have been. And that in and of itself is important and the point. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Hey, Daniel, thank you for that point. You know, Sarah Wire, I wanted to, uh, to toss this to you just as, you know, a, a fellow media person Looking at these release of these documents and the kind of thoroughness with which the committee was able to do its work, I mean, some of this is also that their their media can't cover a topic like this with the kind of depth that this uh, committee can. And books take a really long time to come out. And it feels like it was really an attempt to to completely get to the edges of all the information that could be made available about this day. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think that the hearings were limited in the fact that, you know, there's only so much evidence that and information that you can present in a matter of hours over, you know, nine or 10 hearings. Um, you know, there were entire branches and aspects of what happened that they were never able to address publicly. And honestly, we'll probably not make it into the, the final report. But you know, they did tell the most holistic version of what happened there. You know, it was, uh, you know, nowhere else have there been a, a compilation of evidence and materials and first-person video mm -hmm. uh, in one place. And there's no way a single media outlet could have done this. Um, you know, no one else except for maybe an independent commission could have done what this committee did. Uh, I'm going to be watching the uh, report very closely. There was you know, talk early on that they were going to write the report as more of a narrative. Hmm. You know, normally you get these uh, you know, investigation reports and they are boring and dry. Hmm. But this committee seems to really grasp that they have to be able to hold the public's attention while also being extremely factual. And uh, so we'll see if it's just going to be a boring, dry hearing or if this is going to be a, yeah. a narrative that you know draws all of those lines back together. You know these congressional folks, you know their staffers. Who do you think is actually writing this thing right now? <laughs> um, 
everybody has a hand in it, I'm sure. Um, you know, the the committee was divided into teams behind the scenes mm-hmm. with each member taking the lead on different aspects of it. You know, one member led on, you know, the money that financed the Stop the Steel rally and another member led on, uh, you know, kind of the White House connection sort of thing. Um, but I have to imagine that once each division had summarized the information they had one person write it that they had you know a single voice because otherwise it does become very disjointed and there had been some reporting early on that they had contracted with a a news reporter to do this um uh to actually write it up as a a you know kind of a narrative story but i haven't heard that in in a couple of months now so Mm. there were some questions about how he was being paid um that republicans raised and we kind of stopped hearing about him (laughs) too frequently uh but we do know that you know this is i'm assuming that's a former journalist not you know like someone working at the new york times ethically i hope so (laughs) (laughs) um you know it's it's gonna be every obviously the you know the government printing office is going to put out the official version but you're going to see a lot of private companies put out versions of the report mm-hmm. in the next couple of days and they're all going to be including you know forwards and additional information that they've pulled in from various places um it's going to be really interesting to see mm-hmm. the different iterations of this mm-hmm. the same way that you know the watergate report had mm-hmm. had different iterations of it published yeah um Listener Will has a question, says, I believe that the J6 committee has done a good job of presenting the narrative that J6 was not a spontaneous event, but rather part of a larger conspiracy to the broader public. I wonder if the transcripts could have been handed over to the DOJ sooner. And if not, why has the DOJ been hamstrung by waiting uh, so long to get these? Shan, what do you think? I think the delay um, with DOJ, at least the publicly perceived delay that me and others can see is probably due to two things. Uh, First, there is an enormous amount of work that has arisen for them from January 6th. I mean, if you only look at the violent protesters who have been prosecuted, that is a lot of cases and they're all being done in DC. So there's a big workload. The complexities of going after the higher ups, the masterminds of January 6th are complicated. Uh, It's sprawling, involves potentially members of Congress, obviously a former president. That's a big workload, very resource intensive. That's part of the reason. I think the other part of the reason is there would have been a lot of high level hand wringing over how do you commence this investigation? Should we? be looking at the president, what can we say about looking at a former president? And because Garland comes, I mean, most of his career now has been as a federal court of appeals judge, I would assume he takes a very scholarly, very meticulous approach to that. And so that would have bogged him down because even in the best of circumstances, DOJ leadership is on top of a very, very big bureaucracy and there are a lot of voices to be heard at the table. So a couple other folks with uh, uh, forward-looking questions here. Art writes in to say, is the Justice Department and or the special prosecutor likely to act on all the evidence and hold Trump and his top-level co-conspirators all accountable? I think we all want to know the answer to that, Art. Uh, And Dorothea writes in to say, after the Justice uh, Department of Justice holds its trial in part based on the work of the January 6th committee, 
and comes to a conclusion to perhaps convict people, could the Supreme Court overturn that ruling? Uh, Ryan Goodman, I was hoping you could sort of spin us forward. What are we looking for over the next uh, few months? You know, accountability, things being thrown to the courts, all that kind of stuff. Sure. So I think that we are looking at most likely, you know, it's a prediction, and I'm, I'm willing to speculate and predict. We're looking at most likely um, in the new year, the district attorney of the Fulton County, Georgia, um, issuing indictments. And I think that um, the most likely person to be indicted in Fulton County, Georgia is Donald Trump. And then the second most likely is probably Rudy Giuliani. She has, for example, the smoking gun, um, full hour audio tape of Trump on a phone call pressuring the Secretary of State Raffensperger. Um, so that's one piece. And then the second piece, I think, is um, that the Justice Department is moving uh, well ahead with the Mar-a-Lago investigation. And I do think Jack Smith has another kind of choice to make, which is, will he bring charges in Mar-a-Lago first, or will he wait to see if he also has charges to bring out of all the January 6 matters? I do think that the Mar-a-Lago investigation looks much closer to being fully baked and that it's very, very hard to imagine that he doesn't recommend indictments uh, to uh, Garland because I've actually done this work of looking at every other case that has been indicted by the Justice Department under this particular criminal statute. And Trump's conduct is by far um, more egregious than the average uh, person. So I think that's a second piece that we're looking for that one can expect and think about for accountability. And then the third is what we've been talking about uh, today, which is all the January 6 matters. And I don't know how far along they are. Uh, the fact that the special counsel just issued these subpoenas in the last couple of weeks to some of the uh, people and that might have information for him on the false slate of electors is a little bit troubling in terms of the timeline. Um, but I, I think if there are evidences there, uh, he is the type of person that would recommend mm -hmm. indictments. And just something to think about in terms of the dynamic here. As a special counsel, it's not really within his domain to take into account any kind of politics or thinking about even things, very serious matters like domestic unrest that could unfurl. So I think applying the facts to the law is what he's going to do. And then he's going to hand that to the attorney general. And then the attorney general has a recommendation from his special counsel. It's going to be hard for him, I think, to turn away yeah. from that. You know, Sarah, I want to close with you were at the Capitol on January 6th and were one of just a few reporters in a safe room with members of Congress. And I think sometimes it's easy in all the details to lose sight of the terror of that day at the, the Capitol. Can you just tell us about a, a little bit about, you know, Nancy Pelosi comes in at the end of the day. What was happening for you at that moment? You know, we had been in that safe room for almost three hours at that point, and members of Congress were terrified. You know, there were screaming matches breaking out between Republicans and Democrats about wearing masks in the safe room. Members were, you know, crying on the phone with their loved ones. I had a couple of members who kept coming by and putting their hand on my shoulder and telling me to, to sit down because my knees were shaking so hard. You can hear it on my audio from interviews I did that day. And you know, at one point towards the end, Nancy Pelosi came into the room and she had been escorted off of, uh, you know, off of Capitol Hill along with the other congressional leaders. But she came back to say that, you know, Congress was going to resume that evening and finish their job. And, you know, she was introduced by Liz Cheney, you know, 
there was none of the other Republican leaders came into the room, but she gave probably the best speech I've ever heard her give. And I've covered her for about 10 years. And um, I will regret the rest of my life that my audio that day did not uh, survive. Um, you couldn't hear what she was saying over the applause. The the members on both sides of the aisle were just clapping the entire time as she was speaking, saying that they were not going to be cowed and bullied by a mob, that they were going to do the job the American people had sent them there to do and make sure that the election was certified. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that moment with us. We've been talking about the work of the January 6th committee and what could happen next with Sarah Weyer, reporter at the LA Times covering January 6th and domestic extremism. Ryan Goodman, professor of law at NYU, also co-editor-in-chief of Just Security and a former special counsel for the Department of Defense. And Shan Wu, join us again. He's a criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst and a former federal prosecutor. Thank you so much to all three of you for joining us. Next week, we're taking a little break. We put together a little theme week for the 9 a.m. hour. We're going to hear from five different authors who each in their own ways reckon with the immigrant experience here in the Bay. So you'll have uh, Isabel Rojas Contreras, Javier Zamora, Washu, Eric Sanchez. It's going to be really uh, wonderful. Also, because it's our last live show of the year and my first full year as a host for the show, I just want to thank all of you listening and calling and commenting. I love hearing your perspectives, getting to hear about your lives. I especially love when you call up and say, hey, Alexis, like we're old pals, because we are in a way. And I just want to tell you about my favorite moment of the whole year. It's tiny, but it's really meaningful to me. Back in November, a listener, Chris, called in to say something, and he prefaced his question by saying, we talk about all these important issues on this show every day. And I remember thinking he didn't say you or forum or experts. No, he said we talk about these things every day. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to build a community for hard conversations like January 6th or easy ones like holiday baking. And I want it to be for everyone, all of us together. So thank you, Chris, for recognizing that. Thank you, all of us. Thank you to our producers who do such an amazing job each and every day. This Hour of Form is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Jennifer Ng. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Our interns are Paul C. Kelly Campos and Lulu Ralda. Susan Davis is senior producer. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I'll talk to you again live in the new year. Stay tuned for another Hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Scott Schaefer. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.